shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, thank you, Laura. Welcome. Uh, if you are joining us online, we're so happy that you're here with us, whether it's live or at some future time. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited to be opening Isaiah 11 this morning with you all on this last Sunday of Advent. Are you all ready for Christmas? I don't know. I didn't hear many yeses from kids. I, parents, you should return the gifts. Are you guys ready for Christmas? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, we are anticipating Christmas, right? We're excited. Laura, who just read the scripture for us, is one of our missionaries going to Japan with MTW. She is anticipating going to Japan. She's so excited. We're so excited to have her sent there, and she will be going sometime in the spring. Christmas is a time of anticipation, but there's so many other things we anticipate in our lives as well. Sometimes our anticipation leads to excitement and results. Sometimes our anticipation leads to disappointment. When I was a little boy and it was Christmas time, I asked my parents for a BB gun. I just really wanted a BB gun, just like the movie, A Christmas Story. It's like, I want a BB gun. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. I was so excited. I wanted a BB gun. And my Christmas was coming. There was a gift under the tree. It was long and thin. It was like a BB gun. It's coming. Christmas Day arrived. I opened it. I tore it open. It was a baseball bat. I was disappointed, very disappointed. But sometimes anticipation meets our expectations. Sometimes you're waiting to get married and you are so excited and you get married. Sometimes you're waiting for a kid to be born. You're pregnant. You want that child to be born. Anticipation meets the expectations and exceeds them. Today, our passage is a passage about anticipation. And we can be assured that what we anticipate here will far, far exceed our expectations. See, Isaiah, as he writes this book to the people of God, he's anticipating exile and destruction of their home. 
Why? Due to their faithlessness, due to their repeated disobedience to God, their idolatry, their worship of other gods, their mistreatment of one another, their sin. So God is telling them, exile is coming. You are going to be disciplined and punished. But even in the midst of that anticipation of exile, God again and again throughout Isaiah outlines how there's something even better coming. And in our passage, God portrays the future king who's going to come, and we can anticipate him. Isaiah's people can anticipate him with great expectation and hope. Right before our passage, Isaiah 10 portrays God's righteous destruction of arrogant human evil. He portrays it as the felling of a forest. All of the trees are lopped off and put down. Let's dig into our passage, but let me pray first and bless our time. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to help correct our misguided and misunderstood expectations and hopes. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us today through this passage. Put in our hearts anticipation and excitement about what you are doing on the stage of human history. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are humans inherently good or evil? This question has been debated in philosophy and the social sciences for thousands of years, actually since the beginning of humanity. However, if you ask any individual on the street this question, you'll get a broad range of answers. Some people will say yes, some people will say no, but most people will answer in the middle with subtle nuance. Yes, but you know, it's because of a bad thing that happened to them. Or no, but sometimes they do something bad, but it's, that's not who they are by their very nature. Many of these people's answers will be dependent on their own experiences with others, however this others have treated them. In our modern age, however, this question is increasingly difficult to answer because moral truth is becoming more and more subjective in people's point of view. It depends on the observer's feelings and point of view. A Pew Research study on truth found that by a three-to-one margin— Adults surveyed said that truth is always relative to the person's experience and situation. In the same survey, 83% of teenagers said that moral truth depends entirely on circumstance. Our society is increasingly out of step with the biblical witness that shows the sad reality that though humanity is created beautifully in God's image and was originally very good, we are now tragically broken and impacted by sin. That is the biblical witness. But if people believe that moral truth is relative and dependent on your circumstances, then how can the true historical message of Christmas be good news? It's all relative. It's all subjective to our personal experience. But in our passage today, in Isaiah 11, we see that Jesus, the promised Messiah, is foretold. The Messiah will be a king who establishes a kingdom where sin is no more. The first Christmas, Jesus' miraculous birth, God became man, is the beginning of that kingdom. It is as if they are come ashore and planted a flag. He has come ashore and planted a flag on the shore. In this kingdom, his coming was necessary because of sin. So right before our passage in Isaiah 10, 33 to 34, we read, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will, be, will fall by the majestic one. Isaiah tells his audience and us that humanity's sin 
is so serious that all of us are like trees before an angry maker who will cut us down in righteous judgment. Left to our own devices, our sin condemns us rightly, and we must be cut down in punishment if we are left to our own devices. However, Isaiah does not end the story there, thankfully for us, but he extends hope. In Isaiah 11:1, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This shoot from the stump of Jesse is Jesus, the promised king who they have been waiting for, and we already know has come, his miraculous birth that we celebrate at Christmas. So let's unpack this morning the idea that King Jesus will establish his Edenic kingdom, so we should wait with hope-filled anticipation. Let me explain that a little bit. Isaiah 11 speaks of that Messiah who will come forth from David's line. Jesse was David's father, a future king, and this future king will establish a kingdom that will be a return to Eden, God's original good purposes. This is a message for Isaiah's audience and us that we should look forward in anticipation, hope, expectation to when this kingdom will be fully realized. So again, King Jesus will establish his Edenic kingdom so we should wait with hope-filled expectation. Let's unpack this through three points. The king's resume, the king's rule, and the king's world. First, the king's resume The first thing we see from our passage is the resume of this promised Messianic king, his qualifications, if you will. Look with me in verse 1. We already noted how Isaiah emphasized that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. This is a reference to a king in the line of David. Again, right before this passage, Isaiah talks about how everyone will be chopped down. So everything is just stumps in the word picture that he's building. But a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. And this will be the promised Davidic king. If we look back further in Old Testament biblical history, we see that the Lord had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This shoot from the stump of Jesse is that promised king that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, the king who will reign forever. And we now know that that is Jesus. In verse 2, Isaiah further unpacks the character of this promised greater son of David. Read with me. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord being upon an individual in the Old Testament was an indication that they had received the power of God for a specific task. Here we see the Spirit of the Lord given to this promised king with three pairs of characteristics. It says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wisdom and understanding were words that were used of government and judicial authority. So the idea here is a king with political and governmental power. The spirit of counsel and might. Counsel and might were words used for wise military action again and again throughout the Old Testament. The promised king will be able to wisely devise the right course of action and execute it with all authority. And then finally, it ends the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The idea conveyed here is true knowledge 
true knowledge which results in a reverent life, a reverent life towards God, the creator. These three pairs of characteristics combine to express the idea that the promised son of David will be characterized by the very breath of God about him. The spirit of the Lord is mentioned repeatedly here on purpose to tie God and this king together. Everything about him will show a divine calling and a spiritual empowerment. This was the reality that God's people had come to realize in Isaiah's day. They needed divine intervention throughout Israel's history, shown again and again in the succession of kings in the historical books of the Old Testament. The kings failed again and again. It's like a litany of disaster if you read the books of the Old Testament. And that's the reality that we as humans need to come to grips with. Human kings of this world will fail us. We cannot place our hope and our trust in individuals of this world. We need supernatural, divine intervention if we are to have hope of dealing with the primary human problem of sin. We need outside help. And so Isaiah provides this promise of a divinely powered king, a Messiah who will come. And the the king's resume concludes in the beginning of verse three where it says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the basis for the promised king's rule and character, a reverent, awe-filled wonder of who God is. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, a reverent amazement. One commentator summarizing verses two and three says, because the Messiah will be characterized by this fear of the Lord, he can be depended upon to perceive correctly and to act with integrity. This future Messianic king, Jesus, who Isaiah wants his readers to believe in, has the Lord as his backer. God himself is the Messiah's resume. Therefore, he can be trusted and depended upon without fail, without doubt. Local Maryland legend Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man of baseball, has the record for the most MLB games played consecutively. 2,632 games in a row, without fail, showing up. The record of the most consecutive games had been held for 56 years before Cal Ripken broke that record. Before and since, no one even came close. The next closest person is Lou Gehrig with a little over 2,000 games. After that, the next closest person only has 1,000 games. Cal Ripken Jr. was a beast. The Orioles and fans could rely on Ripken to show up and play for 17 years straight before he voluntarily ended his streak in 1998. When it comes to baseball, Ripken was the definition of dependability someone on whom others could rely. But in the face of our King Jesus, Ripken's dependability is nothing. Jesus is God-made man, the one we desperately needed when we had no hope at all. He showed up and put his life on the line to die for us, to save us, to bring us back into relationship with the Father. Again and again throughout the Bible, God has proven trustworthy, true, dependable. And this Messiah, this king that our passage unpacks, has that dependability. So the question that confronts each of us when we think about this is what do we rely on if it's not King Jesus? Just like Isaiah's audience, we too often rely on worldly human leaders, politicians, celebrities, self-help gurus, 
pastors. We too often rely on material wealth, our own achievements, our successes, spouses, parents, children, education, any number of things. We try to rely on those, but they will fail us. All of these things will not prove dependable when put to the test. Let's turn to and rely on the one who has the most excellent resume, King Jesus. In another passage, just a couple of chapters before, Isaiah 9, which also speaks of this coming king. Isaiah 9, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is our King Jesus. His resume is without peer, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We can trust him. He created all that we see, and he has all power and authority and is gracious and merciful. Why don't we rely on God? Why don't we rely on Jesus, our King? Well, sometimes we don't know his character. We think we do, but it's a warped interpretation. So we should spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, getting to know him. Sometimes we don't believe his promises. We hear them, but we don't trust and believe that he can deliver. We should pray for increased faith and belief. Sometimes we think the things of the earth will help us. We think, oh yeah, God will help me when I die and I need to go to heaven. But right now in the here and now, I need to rely on my own devices. I need to rely on wealth, on success, on other people. God can help you in the here and now. The second thing we see in our passage is the righteous result of the Messianic king. We see the impact of his rule. In the middle of verse 3, it goes on, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This great future king will be a righteous judge who judges on behalf of the poor and oppressed and the meek. He does not govern based on outward appearances or those who say pleasing platitudes to make him happy. He sees into true character and the true heart. This Messiah will be able to see deeper than normal human rulers and judges can. He will not have to rely on just outward appearances. True absolute justice requires true absolute knowledge. And in Isaiah 11, we see that only this king has that true absolute knowledge. He will judge rightly. In the ancient Near East and in Israel, it was the responsibility of the king to defend and take care of the poor and oppressed. It was an ideal king's job to lift up those who are downtrodden. However, it was an ideal, but the reality was sadly rarely realized. Too often then, just as now, the powerful protected their own interests first at the expense of the poor and oppressed and the meek. But here in our passage, we see a king who will judge rightly on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, and the meek. In verse 4, going on, it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Rod of his mouth and breath of his lips indicate a judge issuing verbal sentencing, a king who will speak and make what is right come to pass. 
Isaiah wants to convey the concept that this king will judge the world and especially the wicked. And this is a responsibility of the Lord God alone. In Genesis 18, as Abraham is praying on behalf of his nephew Lot, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you, Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And then in Deuteronomy 32, Moses, praising God, says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Again and again, I could read you so many passages, God alone is judge of all the earth. And so Isaiah's readers would instantly understand that this Messiah, this king, was being equated with God. In verse 5, we read, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In the Old Testament, clothing is used to indicate the essential character of an individual. And so the great awaited king will bring justice and equity to the earth because fundamentally, at the very basis of his character, he is righteous and faithful. That is who he is. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, these two characteristics were two essential, important characteristics of God himself, and ones that humanity should cultivate in order to lead a life that pleases God. Righteousness in the Old Testament was often the ability to do that which is right in all circumstances. Faithfulness was, uh, it comes directly from a word that means dependable and true. So these two words combine to show that the long-awaited king is going to be faithful, righteous, and will be a combination of both divine and human. Oswald, a commentator, writes, Righteousness and faithfulness were the characteristics that the Israelite people saw in their God and wanted in their king. And here, finally, the two will combine. Previous Israelite kings had repeatedly failed both the character and action tests. They had led the people of God astray again and again through worshiping other gods and oppressing the weak and the poor. But here, the promised future Messianic king's character is righteous and faithful, and so he will protect the weak and downtrodden. He will provide righteous justice as a true king should. And this is honestly what most of us want. We want a leader who will come in and right the wrongs just the wrongs that others are doing, maybe not necessarily the wrongs that we do. The leaders of this world, from political to religious to celebrities and athletes, too often do not have this upright and faithful character. Almost every year, there is a scandal exposing the poor character of some individual in whom people have placed their trust. Every human has sinned against God and others. If we place our hope and our trust in humans, we will be disappointed. The French Revolution was lauded at the time as bringing true enlightenment and freedom to humanity. People were ecstatic when it happened. French revolutionary Henri Grégoire wrote after the overthrow of the French king, he wrote this. He said, we have annihilated the throne of this crowned monster. Since yesterday, I have been suffocated by joy to the point of being unable to eat or sleep. This guy was over the moon because they had freed humanity from oppression. However... The next 20 years would see disaster after disaster as human nature truly came to shine in the French Revolution and people were murdered left and right and they just right away set up another king, Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor. uh, Henry Gregoire became incredibly disillusioned 
and disgusted by the revolution and by what happened in the next 20 years. And you can go and read any number of revolutionaries who have the exact same story. Human attempts to bring about justice and righteousness without guidance from God will fail and disappoint us because every human is impacted by sin and it will creep into everything that we do. Relying on humanity will disappoint us. But if we place our hope in Jesus the King, he will not disappoint us. He will one day bring righteousness and justice to this earth. That doesn't mean that the present is not difficult. We live in a world that is not fair. We live in a world that often does not have justice. Oppression, evil, injustice happen every day around us, to us, and sometimes committed by us. But one day, the righteous and faithful one will return. Our Messiah and Savior will come and bring true righteousness and justice. And so here in the present right now, we can endure with hope and trust because one day he will make it happen. And because that is who he is, that is his character, we also are called to be like him. We are to value righteousness and faithfulness. We are to seek justice and advocate for the poor and the oppressed. So we need to cultivate this character in ourselves and seek to do it in our everyday lives. And we have opportunities. Many people seek to cultivate mercy and justice through adoption, helping the poor and hungry, speaking out, in, out against injustice that they see all around themselves. There's so many ways that we can do this, and we should. Finally, as a result of the Messianic king's divine empowerment and his righteous, faithful rule, we see the king's future anticipated world, and it is a world of return to Eden, a return to how God originally intended humanity and creation to exist in peaceful harmony with God-glorifying results. We see three consequences of the Messianic king's rule in verses six to eight. Reconciliation, change, and curse removal. First, reconciliation of old hostilities. In verse six, we read, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The predators and the prey will exist in peaceful harmony. That hostility and fear will be laid aside that characterize the relationship. The peace brought about by this king, this future king, is so secure and sure that dominion over the earth, originally given to Adam and Eve, is now exercised by a little child who leads all the creatures. But it's more than just a reconciliation of old hostilities. It is a reversal. Look with me closely. In this verse, the predators rely on the prey. It's the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat. This word dwell and lie down, they have connotations of dependence. Second, there is a change in nature. In verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. This change in nature to a lack of killing is intended to point back to Eden, where God originally created the world beautiful and good with no death and no evil. Eden is being restored, and we see that in the third thing, where the curse of sin is removed. In verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the roll, the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The two snakes are mentioned to remind the audience of Eden and the snake which misled Eve and Adam. However, the enmity that was brought about by the curse in Genesis 3.15 is no more. The woman's child and the serpent are able to play together. The curse is removed by Jesus' return and death. 
Verse 9 summarizes and wraps up this picture of Eden restored, and it's a beautiful picture. Read with me in verse 9. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The they here is all who have trusted and hoped in the Messianic king. And what do they do? They neither hurt nor destroy. Can you picture a world like that? where there is no one who hurts another, where there is no more destruction because of our sin? That's almost unimaginable. It says that they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The holy mountain was a favorite description in Isaiah of where God dwelled with man. It is taking the temple imagery and expanding it. And here we see that the holy mountain is expanded to all of creation, In all of creation, in the future kingdom of King Jesus, the whole world is God's holy mountain where God is dwelling with everyone in peace and there's no hurting and no destroying. And this whole world will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The future result of Jesus's kingdom will be that peace and holiness and intimate connection with God fill the entire world. This is an extended metaphor to explain that in the Messiah's reign, the fears associated with sin, insecurity, are no more. They're removed forever. This peaceful, holy, uh, uh, harmonious future kingdom described is only the result of knowing the Lord. And we know now after Jesus that that is only possible through what he did at Christmas how he came, God made man into the world for a purpose, to die for us, to die in our place and be raised to new life. And it's only in hoping and trusting him that that sin problem that we led with can be done away with and we can have this future messianic kingdom of beauty and goodness. And we still wait for it. We're still anticipating it. It has not arrived yet. When I was in college, I took Hebrew from a computer science professor who is also uh, an Orthodox Jew, and he taught us Hebrew, and he and I would have conversations. I would go to his office. He was my favorite professor by far. He had this great, beautiful, big white beard, and he would sing from the Hebrew book of Esther in class. It was amazing, but he and I would have these conversations about the book of Isaiah, and he said, Nathan, you Christians, you believe that the Messiah has already come, but how can the Messiah have come when we look around the world and we still see all this evil and this wickedness that is happening, how can the Messiah have come when passages like Isaiah promise that when he comes, sin will be no more, hurting and destroying will be no more? And me as a young 20-year-old, I was like, uh. But we had tried to have conversations. We had good discussions. And the reason why we believe this is because he first had to come and deal with our sin. He had to die in our place. And then once he did that, the message needed to be spread to as many people as possible. And once that occurs, then he will come again for sin and death and destroying and hurting to be done away with forever and finally. That's what uh, theologians call the already and the not yet. We have already seen God's salvation come forward. The kingdom has been established, but is not yet fully realized. This new, beautiful Eden restored is actually the new heavens and the new earth. And our ideas of heaven often fall woefully short. 
In the early 2000s, uh, Barna did a survey, and it showed that 80% of Americans believe in heaven. They believe that heaven exists, but their ideas of what heaven is like varied widely. Some of them said it's just existing forever with God. Some said it's a a rest and a reward for those who have lived a good life. A few people said it's people in white clothes sitting on clouds playing harps. Some people said it was symbolic, and the answers go on and on. They varied widely, just like different movie portrayals of heaven. In the movie Field of Dreams, uh, the Kevin Costner builds this beautiful baseball field in uh, a field of corn, and all of these dead baseball players come out and play baseball. And his dad says, is this heaven? For some people, playing baseball forever would be heaven. In Bill and Ted's bogus journey, Bill and Ted die, and they go to heaven, and they're dressed in these white clothes, and they recite rock lyrics all the time. Maybe for some people, that's heaven. In the movie Gladiator, the uh, Russell Crowe dies, Maximus dies, and he goes to a field of eternal bliss, living with his dead wife and son in peace. And that's heaven for them. Most people, if pressed, would say they really have no idea what heaven actually is. And sadly, are probably not really that interested in going there if they were really pushed to it. But the new heavens and earth, what is tri- Isaiah is trying to portray here is beyond our expectations, beyond our hopes. It is amazing beyond what we can possibly anticipate. It is a complete restoration of creation to all that is good, a complete erasure of sin and death and all that we hate. This is the future we look forward to and anticipate, a return of God's original good creation. One day the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and that will be beautiful and glorious with the result that there's no more sinning, no more hurting, no more destroying. C.S. Lewis says that heaven should be a motivation for us. He says if we aim for earth, then we'll get neither earth or heaven. He says if we aim for heaven and has that as the focus of what we're anticipating and working towards, then we'll get earth thrown in together. He goes on to explain that Christians who did the most for this present world were actually people who thought the most about the next one. We need to be so anticipating what's going to happen in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, that it will impact our everyday life. Finally, in verse 10, we see Isaiah conclude this section with the word that in that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. We see here that King Jesus will be an attraction to all the world. All the nations will come and inquire of him because he is the one in whom salvation is found. Advent reminds us that Jesus will come back God's kingdom will be fulfilled. He came once as promised. He will come again. And so we can wait in anticipation and hope, not expecting to be disappointed like I was on Christmas morning when I got a baseball bat instead of a BB gun, but we can wait with hope-filled anticipation, knowing that his promises are sure. The beautiful, amazing world that he promises will come. Sin will be no more, and we will dwell with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have provided this word for us. Help us, Lord God, as we reflect in the busyness of Christmas time, the wonderful, amazing truth that you have come and established your kingdom. 
through your death and resurrection, you have brought it about. We can trust and believe that what has begun will be completed. Though we taste now a little bit, we will fully taste and see your kingdom established when sin and death are completely wiped away. Help us live now here in the present as if that is true with direct results in how we love one another and interact with other people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Oh, holy night.